Welcome back to the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. Thank you so much for joining us once again this week. What an amazing time it is to be alive, especially for this podcast. Oh my gosh, the amount of feedback I'm continuing to hear from you guys in person and through social media it is just so humbling. I cannot thank you enough. Again, this is a collective thing. So wherever you're listening to this, whether it's Spotify, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, what have you. I just really appreciate it. Thank you for the likes. Thank you for the reviews and the shares, the comments. It just it just adds such joy uh, to my life because this is for you guys. And the fact that you're enjoying it enough um, to be here and be present just means the world to me. So thank you so much. Uh, I cannot wait for you guys to hear this one. Uh, Pastor James Haldane, what an amazing guy. He's a beloved father and husband. His two children are just joys to, to behold. Uh, he's a devoted parent. Um, you could see that in his life. He's been my friend for, I mean, my goodness, uh, probably a decade and a half now. We've we've really known each other. And this was a long time coming. We'll, we'll talk about it. But uh, for somebody who has his Masters of Divinity, who is somebody that has served in the executive pastor role at Jackson Nass Church for so long. He has so much experience, and the wisdom that he has uh, is so... It, it's it's like he's 40 years older than he is, in, in my opinion, and his ability to just focus on the middle, to hear both sides of arguments, to be able to live in tension with people is just so admirable that I think this is one of the key points for this podcast and the key takeaways. So without further ado, here is my good friend, mentor, and fellow pastor, James Haldane. Well, I will say this, that this has been a long time coming. It's probably been about two and a half years I've been bugging you. Hey, I'm going to have a podcast someday, and I want you to, to come on it. You're the, one of the first people I approach. So here you are, Pastor James Haldane. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, man, it's my pleasure. Uh, and I'm sure it'll be worth the wait. Um, not because I have anything like substantial to bring to the table in my own opinion, but because our conversations are always uh they're always great, man. So I'm just looking forward to having another conversation with you. Yeah, I, I am too. And that's the thing is the beauty of it. It's not really scripted or anything. It's it's just a reflection of you know our relationship. And for those um, who don't know, we've known each other for probably a good 15 years. But mm-hmm. over the last, I would say, uh, we were talking about one of the ministries I, I just have stepped away from. Um, for the last five years, you know, we have our conversations have become more personal. Um, yeah, always theologically based. But you have been a spiritual mentor to me. You have played a significant role post college. You know where I'm. You know around a lot of professors. I'm a, a, around pastors and other other people I can bounce ideas off of. But while you were doing your MDiv work, uh, and I was you know trying struggling to lead this young adult group and wrestling with a lot of these uh, things, uh, these terms in school, which I was they were finally starting to know, take root. Uh, Luckily, I mean, maybe uh, unfortunately for you, but luckily for me, (laughs) you were in my life and you were a lightning rod for just questions. I mean, if you go back through some of my text messages, they're just books. (laughs) So I just have to say thank you for your patience and endurance with me. Hey, I have a, I have a, um, a comrade in lengthy texting in you because uh, I'm notorious for sending people 
paragraphs in text messaging, which is not the intention for that medium, but for folks like you and I, it works. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. And it's like, hi, hey, today I was I was thinking about this really arbitrary theological uh, event in history that the church doesn't talk about today. What do you think about it? And hey, um, are we still getting dinner? It's like, hey, wait. Well, yeah, so we're talking about very superficial things from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the one of the things I've asked of, of all my guests, and it's always it's always a joy from my perspective to hear these things, is from from where you're at now with like with Christ, like that's a huge journey. But I always want to ask people how how did you even come to know Christ? Was was Jesus or was Christianity a part of your life growing up? Uh, we'll get to the whole pastoral side here, which for me is fascinating. But the the journey to Christ, I think, is so such an intimate story that I always like to capture that. So for you, how, how did you come to know Jesus as your savior and uh, master teacher, rabbi, everything else? I um. I actually grew up in the church. So I am now, um, I am a fourth generation uh, minister. Um, I grew up going to a congregational church uh, here in Jackson, where my great grandfather was uh, the pastor for five years, I believe, right around that amount of time. And then a, th a few years after he left, um, my grandfather, his son, uh, came to be the pastor there and he was there 22 years before, uh, following a call to, uh, the Los Angeles area, uh, to be a, a pastor out there. He was named minister emeritus and was sort of like when he came back to Jackson to, um, visit friends and family, it, it was almost like some sort of celebrity was rolling into town. Like Bob Haldane's coming. Bob's going to preach. Did you hear that? Reverend Haldane is back. And it was like, it was quite the thing um, to the extent that the Memorial garden at the church is named after uh, my Nana. Um, and <laughs> the fellowship hall is named after uh, my Nana and my Papa, my, my grandparents, um, the Haldane fellowship hall, the plaque still says up on the wall. Um, so I don't remember, uh, I don't remember a salvation moment. Uh, I don't remember a time in my life, not believing in God and not believing in Jesus and not understanding that Jesus had saved me though. I don't also, that means I don't remember a moment where like I repented and, um, accepted Christ and started this like wholehearted pursuit of him uh we were very much this like september through may um every single sunday my mom was like hyper involved at the church um uh we, yeah we were just always there and then i um when i was a teenager so i'm gonna date myself when i was a teenager <laughs> in the 90s all right uh, I really like kind of found myself a bit in the Seattle grunge uh, alternative rock scene. And my parents believed in the uh, church should be a place where you can just be yourself. So come as you are. You don't have to dress up for God. And so when I protested um, the clothes that I had been wearing my whole life to church and they were like, no, we're torn jeans and flannels. That's fine. Um, I was wow. like, yeah. And the rest of the church didn't love that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I, got, you know, I would imagine. 
Yeah. So, I mean, because we were a smaller um, traditional organ in hymn worship, um, weekly liturgy, invocation in the Lord's Prayer, recitation kind of um, liturgical church. Sure. And so with that tends to come these expectations about how you look and how you carry yourself and, and that sort of thing. And um, so I started feeling a bit ostracized. Then some stuff happened with my family. Um, my, uh, my older brother became a dad before graduating high school. And that, of course, turned uh, some heads and um, led to some, uh, let's say, behavior from Christians that didn't reflect what I had learned about Christ. And so hmm. I like to say in all of my adolescent omniscience, I, uh, I saw that hypocrisy in at my first opportunity, which was after graduation. Um, so graduate high school. And then while I was still living at home, my parents let me make the decision about whether I would continue to go to church. And so I stopped. Um, it was like graduation Sunday. I gave <laughs> the tradition of that church was for seniors to give like homilies. And so I gave my little speech and I sort of told the congregation off um, in my oh. speech. Oh, right. oh, really? Like, can you, do you remember like what the motive was there behind that? Like what you said too? Yeah. I just wanted to call him out and call him up. So I, the opening line to my talk was they say every cloud has a silver lining. And up until recently, my lining has just been gray. And I went on to call out hypocrisy and to say that the Jesus I'd heard about in that very building in those Sunday school classrooms and in that sanctuary, um, I didn't see that Jesus in the people that were there uh, when my family needed him the most. And then I identified the, the minister who had been there my entire life and our youth leader uh, at the time as people who um, gave me hope for the church. Um, and I ended, so I ended on a positive note. Um, and then I stopped going, uh, like all, you know, brave people do you tell people off and then you disappear. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah, I, I, so I just stopped going to church like completely. And I wouldn't necessarily say that I like walked away from God, but I certainly stopped paying attention to him. And I, I wasn't really living a sanctified life at that point anyway. I mean, Jesus was pretty well confined to Sunday. Um, I listened to lots of music and I watched lots of movies that weren't befitting of someone who has um, given their life to Christ. And so um, just as an example, it's not all about what you listen to and what you watch, but like those things reflected like the parental advisory sticker better reflected my life than uh the hymn book or than the pages mm. of the bible did oh that's that's hard hitting for anyone oh my gosh yeah so right. um so what happened was uh i i reconnected with a friend of mine from high school um i was a year out starting my second year of college and there was something about this friend um that was just different now she had always been like a kind-hearted um fun, sweet, very sincere person. And we had been friends for a couple of years, three years, I guess, at that point. Um, but something, something just struck me different this time. And I was like, I want to spend some more time with that girl. And so I did. And I learned 
that the thing that drew me to her was Jesus. Um, she was a devout Christian, um, faithfully attending her church, praying every day, reading her, her Bible every day, talking about the Lord all the time, letting me know when and how she had been praying for me. Um, and I was like, this is, this is the Christian that I wanted my church to be, you know? Um, and eventually I fell in love with and married that girl. Um, and she, uh, not eventually, actually really quickly, I fell in love with her and eventually we got married. Um, <laughs> and, uh, she really led me back to the Lord and she did it by just being real. Um, and so like I started attending church with her while we were dating. And then, um, we both moved to Kalamazoo, um, for college. We both graduated from, uh, Western Michigan university where I studied education. I know we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and, uh, we looked for churches to attend together while we were there. And, um, we got married uh, after I graduated and about a year and a half before she did. Um, I, I started my career as an educator and we moved back to Jackson. And I had visited uh, Jack's Naz, uh, where I now work. I, I had visited there one time in high school with a friend of mine. And they, I, I play drums um, and have since I was like 13 and uh, still do and love it. I walked into their sanctuary and there were drums on the stage um, and there were electric guitars in the service. And so that whole like Seattle alternative grunge thing in me, I was <laughs> like, Ooh, what is this? And the message I heard that weekend was um, uh, Jeff Trotter was speaking, who was one of the associate pastors. I learned this later. He was one of the associate pastors and he like kind of embodied, he was like, if Jim Carrey was a pastor, um, oh, man. he would be like, so Jeff Trotter, like he managed to preach a sermon that made me laugh so hard. My face hurt, um, and hit me in like right in my gut so much that it made, it was one of those like, ha, 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 oh, kind of sermons. And, um, man, I walked away from that place filled with joy and really challenged in just wanting to know more about Jesus. So that experience is what drew me back to Jackson as when I moved with my wife then at the time. Um, and our, our, uh, son who was, um, about six months away from being born. Um, uh, we were like, Hey, that Nazarene church was pretty cool. Um, I told her that let, why don't we go check out that Nazarene church as we were trying to find a place uh, that we both wanted uh, to go to where I wasn't still kind of jaded and she had a not awesome experience at the church she grew up in. And so she was looking for a new place too. And um, so we went one Sunday and then we went back and then we went back. And after about four weeks, we decided this is going to be our church home. And about four months later, I was playing on the worship team and we started volunteering in small groups. And man, the more I did at that church, the less I wanted to do anything else. And, um, I was, I think 28. So we started attending when I was probably 23, no, 24, maybe. And when I was 28, I decided it's time for me to rededicate my life to Christ. And, um, and I did in the, the opening line in my baptism testimony, I remember is there's a fundamental difference between knowledge and understanding. And I've known 
about God my whole life, but I didn't really understand what he wants from my life until just these last few years. Mm. Um, mm. And he wants all of me. So I'm giving him all of me. And I, I commemorated that rededication with water baptism. And uh, that was like a catalytic moment. Um, and here I am now as a pastor, you know, at that church. Yeah, that, that very church. When, what year would that have been that you started attending there and, and saw Jeff? Like, cause I'm trying to think of a timeline here because I started attending like right at the turn of the millennium. Uh, 1997, okay. 96, 97, depending on what time of the year it was. It was my senior year of high school um, that I went on a Friday night for riot, which, which was this like um, outreach youth ministry thing where the goal was to provide a safe place for high school students and their friends to hang out. So instead of going and partying and being subject to all kinds of craziness that way, um, go to somewhere safe where there was pizza and man, it was nuts. I don't know if you ever went to riot, but it was like, I did a few times three on three basketball and dodgeball in the gym and D and D tournaments in the teen center. Um, at the same time, like yeah. talk about appealing to all kinds of crowds. It was, it was awesome. That was actually the thing that I was like, man, a church that will do this has to be a cool place on a Sunday morning. So I convinced my friend to let me spend the entire weekend at his house. Uh, oh so I can check out their Sunday morning service. And, uh, yeah, I did. So that would have been, I graduated in 97. So that would have been sometime during that school year. And it left an indelible enough impression on me that we went back in January of 2004. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, that's when we moved back to Jackson. And then, because that would, that, that makes sense. I'm trying to always put it in the timeline. Like, well, where was I at? Because I, I obviously I met you, I knew who you were by the time I was in middle school with, with Ken, uh, and Teresa, or excuse, excuse me, pastor Ken, then pastor Bryce, um, going back and forth there. So, and I was like, yeah, I know, I know James, I was thinking about it before, before our, our meeting there, uh, pre-show was just like, how long have I actually known you in the back of my head? I'm like, it's gotta be about 15 years now. Uh, and you said it, that and I was like, wow, has it been that long already? And then you just said, uh, you knew who I was, which is baffling to me. Um, when you were in middle school, I was like, oh, man, because <laughs> I had already graduated college. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I, I'm going to try to stay young forever. That's my, that's my goal. I haven't found the secret yet. Uh, but I, 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 if I find something, I'll, I'll be sure to share it. Uh, but you, you alluded to something very important earlier and yes it's revisiting this like you went to school you the whole pastor thing that was not you know like many of us that was not why you went to school you went to school for education and and you were a teacher for a long time here in the jackson county area so like what led to that decision in college what what fueled that passion and then how in the world did, did that transition go from education to to pastoring there's education in pastoring uh, of course yeah. but mm -hmm. how, how do you describe that journey um, so I graduated high school, um, in a band and that was like all I wanted to do with my life. And now I knew I wasn't good enough to like make it as a professional musician, like a rock star, you know, that was sort of the fantasy, but, um, one in like what 10 million have that opportunity, probably even like worse odds than that. Um, and so I like, I just want to be in the music scene. 
Um, but I don't know what that means. And at that time, like you, you got to understand that you go to high school, you go to college, you get a career like that was drilled in us and the lack of people in the trades now, like the number of boomers that are getting ready to retire with no one to fill their shoes in, uh, in the skills trades. It's because our whole generation, all of us Gen Xers, like we were like beaten with go to college, get a degree, start a career, go to college, get a degree, start a career. So I started at uh, the community college here in Jackson, not knowing what to major in, but, but, fantasizing about moving out to Seattle and working for sub pop records or something like that. And, um, so my second semester, my freshman year, I thought I better start figuring out what my major is going to be. Um, and I was, I remember talking to my mom. So after church one Sunday, so I hadn't abandoned church entirely. Cause I, I did go to church with my mom at least one Sunday. Cause I remember I went and then we went to Wendy's afterwards and we were sitting down at this table. Um, and, and in one conversation, which was largely one-sided, I was doing a lot of external processing. Um, I was talking about how I had, uh, I'd worked at uh, Bandcamp um, for my alma mater as an assisting clinician for the drum line. So I, I had been helping their percussion instructor um, lead the drum line at the camp. And it was so much fun. Um, and I, I was in the drum line when I was in high school and I got to kind of co-captain um, that drum line. And so I, I worked really underneath my best friend who was the center snare and, and captain, um, just teaching people, uh, okay. helping him out, like showing them technique and teaching them licks and, and that sort of thing and watching them improve and I'm telling my mom about how much fun that that was. And I, and I realized in that conversation, you know, it's less about the music and it's more about like watching people improve and knowing that I had something to do with that. Um, that's just really exciting to me. And so at the beginning of that conversation, I was like, you know, communications, something in the communications field, because that might transfer into the music industry somehow, or maybe teaching. And, and at the end of that conversation, uh, I was saying teaching or maybe something in the communications field. And so shortly thereafter, I went and talked to um, my advisor uh, at the community college, got a list of like, you know, Michigan is um, just bloated with uh, universities and public universities and colleges, um, several of which have really strong education programs. Um, and so I got a list of the top like five and I just started applying and I couldn't ever really like when I got into education at Western every methods class they were like tell us why you got into teaching and everybody had these stories of well when I was in fifth grade Mrs. Smith blah 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 and she changed my life and I want to give back that way um I have always since I was three years old known I wanted to be a teacher and I didn't have a story like that um All I could say without really understanding what this meant, mm-hmm. all I could really say was, I think I was just called to teach. Um, something inside of me just clicked after I had already started college and said, this is what you should do. Uh, and so I've been studying it. And um, so far I have confirmation. And so as I went through my program, 
I was always a real average student. I graduated high school with a 3.01. Like I barely graduated with honors. <laughs> and my, my entire college, bachelor's college career, I just kept doing better and better and better and learning more and getting smarter. And I ended up graduating with like a 3.79 or something like that. Um, and I'm not like trying to, you know, throw stats out there. I'm just showing like God was all over it before I even realized that that's what was happening, you know? Sure. Yeah. He just kept blessing the journey. And, um, so eventually I graduated and eventually I, I got a, a teaching job. Um, I worked in Battle Creek for two years, um, and then transferred to a school here in Jackson, um, worked there for eight years. So I was in education for 10 years, um, teaching primarily teaching elementary school, uh, first and second grade, a year of fifth grade. And I did some administration, where uh, I was a dean, essentially an assistant principal for three years. And then I got to do some really cool stuff with like curriculum in uh, curriculum design and instructional coaching. So I got to like train teachers and develop um, like learning trajectories. And um, I worked at it for a charter school organization. And so I got to help work on curriculum that was gonna benefit the entire organization potentially. Um, I don't know if any of my work actually made it anywhere, but I got to be a part of sort of a think tank for that sort of stuff, which was really cool. Um, yeah, I can, I can imagine I, like yeah, some, it, something like that. Like how, like, what are those lessons that, I mean, obviously everyone has, like they go to college, here's what I'm learning. Here's what I think I'm going to do. I mean, in that time, like that decade of, of time, how, like, what are some of the things of like the takeaways, like the biggest takeaways as you look back at that part of your life that just still hit home? One of the one of the big things for me was I learned that uh, I got as much out of working with adults as I did working with kids. Mm. Um, I really like kids. Um, I joke that I, I I did really well at teaching first and second grade because my my level of maturity and my sense of humor is on par with the students. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a big seven year old basically. Um, <clears throat> But, uh, but when I got to train teachers, when I got to lead professional development for my peers, uh, when I got to give advice, when people would come to me and ask for advice, um, when I was a dean and I was responsible for the development of teachers, man, that was, that was fun. Um, even the hard work, even the tough stuff, the, the only thing I ever did that I think I look back on and I'm like, if I had everything to do over again, I'm not sure I would pick that was the one time I had to. I had to fire somebody um, because it was a friend. It was somebody I was on a team with. And then like two years later, I was her boss and that was really hard. Um, but I learned a lot from that. Even still, I referenced that experience a lot. And so um, I guess I would do it again, but I would hesitate um, anyway. So working with adults, that, that was, that was the big thing. Really. It kind of boiled down to, I like, you know, this is a, this is a pastoral term um, typically, but I like shepherding people. That's really what it boiled down to. Um, and I've never put that language on it before, but, but it makes sense. I, I like shepherding people. Mm -hmm. um, and in the meantime, here's, here's the big thing to know. Um, about a year and a half into my Dean role, I totally burned out. Um, oh, really? Totally burned out, like hard. I left every day. Um, feeling, feeling like, uh, a pumpkin being prepped, uh, 
for Halloween, you know, like just all of my insides were scraped out. And um, when I was in the midst of the day, when I was with kids and I was with um, my peers and I was leading my teachers, um, I felt great. And then as soon as I walked away, I felt hollow. And I'm like, I don't, I taught God a lot about it. I talked to my pastor and asked for his input. You know, I, I, I remember saying, God, I don't get it. Like Paul said, I know the secret of being content in every circumstance. And then he tells us the secret. Like, I know the secret. It's not a secret anymore. Um, am I looking for contentment in my work? And I don't even realize it because I'm really discontent, but I'm not trying to look for my contentment in my vocation. And um, eventually what I saw reluctantly um, is that God was calling me away from education. Um, I continued to be a dean for a year and a half and went back in the classroom for two years. And the second year I was back in the classroom uh, is when I finally accepted God's call on my life to enter vocational ministry. And mm. like one, one thing that, uh, you know, I haven't mentioned yet that shows up throughout my life story is that that Sunday morning where I like basically told off my congregation as this like, um, <laughs> arrogant yeah. 18 year old. Um, the first thing my minister said to me when I was walking out of the sanctuary that day was you should be a pastor. And I was like, why? Because I gave a good speech. Like you don't know my life. God doesn't want me. Um, and then as I would, I, and I was sort of like the school chaplain at the school I worked at. Like everybody knew I was a Christian, which I guess is a good testimony. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so people would come to me with prayer requests and, uh, they would come to me when they were just struggling with personal stuff and I would just listen. And I sometimes, depending on who it was, like I would pray for them right then. And sometimes I would just let them know I'd be praying. Um, my principal even had me pray for our meal at our staff Christmas party, which I'm pretty sure Whoa. he's not allowed to do. Um, but she did it anyway, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, People knew I was a Christian. And so I wound up providing pastoral counseling for my colleagues um, and for you, my boss. When you didn't even know it or kind of, I mean, yeah, yeah. In, I mean, in a non-pastoral role. Yeah. Yeah. So they would, they would ask me for advice and I would be like, well, here's what scripture says. So yeah. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this is what I know of Jesus, you yeah. know? And so like, I think this is what he would have you do. Um, and I uh, worked with a lot of, I worked with a lot of believers and so it, that made it sure. easy. But um, anyway, uh, so a couple of my colleagues told me you should be a pastor. My boss told me you should be a pastor. And every time I'm like, why? Because I give good advice. Why? Because I'm a good listener. Why? Because, and I was so dismissive. And in my mind, every time I'm like, you don't know my life. You don't know all of my inadequacies. You don't know all of my shortcomings. Um, and in the meantime, God's going, but do you know Moses? And do you know Paul? And do you know Isaac and Jacob? And like, my story is full of flawed people. James, pay attention. And um, eventually I heard that message. And like literally walking into my office one morning, I had a conversation with God because I got there super early. Nobody else was in the building yet. I'm talking out loud to God as I'm walking through the front office of the school. And he's like, I want you to go into full-time ministry. And I'm like, you're wrong. I mean, I know, I know you're never <laughs> wrong, but you're wrong. Oh. You know? 
Oh. And, and like oh, yes. almost audibly, God is like, uh, what? I'm not wrong. And I went, oh, my word. God, I think you're right. And it was just like this switch flipped. So then I talked to Ken, who you mentioned earlier, uh, Pastor Ken, uh, who was the executive pastor at Jackson has at the time and responsible for walking people through this process. And he helped me understand what a call to ministry means, you know, like it's to whatever, wherever, however, uh, God calls you. And, um, I, uh, I said, I think God is calling me to this church. I think he wants me to be a pastor here. And he laughed at me. Like I wasn't laughing. We weren't, he wasn't laughing with me. He laughed at me. He's like, ha, ha, that's not how it works. Oh and, no. You know? And I was like, um, I've got some growing to do then because I really feel like that's what he's saying. And I just kept seeking God. And, um, eventually I let go of all of my desires. Um, and, and I, and I had that moment of entire sanctification where I was like, all right, God, my past, my present and my future, it's all yours. And even in my, like the pinnacle of my spiritual life, um, my righteousness is as filthy rags. And so I am like laying myself at your feet, um, completely at your mercy and so ready to do whatever you want me to do. And then he gave me everything I wanted. Um, Ken and Teresa left the church because she took a position at um, Olivet Nazarene University and decided to take her husband with her, which I think was a good call. Um, that opened yeah. up. Two, uh, yeah, right. Uh, that opened up two um, staff positions at our church. I was on the board at the time, so I knew about them right away though they weren't leaving for like six months, they gave an uncommonly long um, like term of notice um, so the congregation or the church leadership could figure out what to do. And because Ken had been at the church over 20 years um, and had been in leadership for a, a good portion of that time. And so um, I kept praying about it, but every time I prayed about, tried to pray about the position and God sending us the right person and showing us what it needed to include. Um, I just kept asking, could it be me? Could it be me? Could it be me? And I, and I couldn't get past it. So I met with our lead pastor, uh, pastor Phil. And, and I just said, look, I need you to tell me that you need this to be somebody who's already a licensed pastor. I need you to tell me I'm not qualified for this position because oh. I can't get past it on my oh, own. Of course. Um, and, uh, he was like, well, I'm glad you called this meeting because I was actually going to meet with you because I wanted to talk to you about this position. <laughs> and even uh, though I had been thinking of myself in that position, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Um, me like, I'm not qualified. You don't know. And I went back to that same old script that I had told everybody else, even though I wanted it. Um, and uh, then there was all of a sudden this real chance that maybe this is what God wanted for me. And so, you know, here I am in the very position of the person who walked me through a call to ministry. I ended up getting Ken's job. And uh, what I realized when I was preparing to just have a conversation with Phil about the job, that's, how, that's what he called the interview. I just want to have a conversation about the job. Um, 
and that's totally how it was. I realized so much of what I had done in education prepared me for this. So I had, um, at that point, I had a bachelor's and a master's degree in education. Uh, my master's is in reading and literacy instruction, which really helped me learn how to pick apart, dissect, understand, and teach literature. Um, hello, like hermeneutics, anyone? I, I use those skills all the time. Yeah. Um, I had, I never sought out to be an administrator. Um, I never sought out to be a lead teacher, an instructional coach, um, a curriculum designer, any of that stuff. God just kept like catapulting me um, forward and blessing me with all kinds of um, uh, career success. And I just kept trying to keep up with them. And everything that happened along that path, like it, it grew me in a way that applied to this job I have now, even the stuff that burned me out, you know, there's a difference between leadership and administration and God has gifted me with leadership skills and I'm a good administrator, but it doesn't come naturally to me. Uh, I have to work pretty hard at it. And my job as a Dean was largely administrative and that's why I burned out. I was just outside of my gift mix 70% of the time. And, um, even that, when I, when I got hired at the church, I was doing two people's jobs. I got hired to be the executive pastor and the church administrator, essentially, because we couldn't afford both mm -hmm. positions sure. um, at the time. And so I, I was able to navigate the first three years on staff doing administrative stuff because I had already sort of trial by fire learned how to be an administrator. Um, and that only lasted about three years before we needed to bring somebody else in and, and thanks to God, literally thank you, God, that he had uh, put us into a position where we could hire a church administrator. Um, <clears throat> so um, there's, there's so much, like when I looked at the dean's or the executive pastor's job description, it was like the church equivalent of what I had already done um, in so many ways. So um, I got hired before I even had my first uh, license. Um, I was a locally licensed pastor. So in the Church of the Nazarene, you know, you have your local license, which is basically like a lay minister. And then you get a district license, which is when you can start marrying people and leading worship services and that sort of thing. And then you become ordained. And all of that is sort of like driven by this educational path um, of all these courses to take to understand our, our doctrine and our history and um, really dive pretty deep into theology. And I was a couple of years into that. Um, and Phil told me four times in six months that he thought I should sign up for seminary. Um, and when your boss tells you one thing four times in six months, you take it seriously. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so I signed up and I got my MDiv. So I started my MDiv after two years in ministry um, or in my second year of, of ministry. And so here I am still learning how to be a pastor, but also going back to school for my second master's degree um, so that I can get some sort of an understanding, like a deep enough understanding about God and the Bible to actually be an effective pastor. Now, this is my thinking, of course, you know. Um, I think um, God... God equips who he calls. And I know God called me to this. So I believe I was already equipped 
for what was needed when I started, but I oh, will sure. say, um, man, I'm so grateful for my MDiv. Um, I am, when I started, my very first class was on Matthew and um, the first face-to-face -face session we had, the prof was like, welcome theologians. And I had to stifle my laugh. I was like, I'm no theologian. Like I can't even call myself an aspiring theologian. Um, and here I am very confident in my, now I'm, I'm no like, I'm no doctor of theology. Um, I, I still do a lot of head scratching and a lot of searching, but um, I don't have any qualms calling myself a theologian anymore. That's for sure. So everything else, God is just, he's continued to lead me and grow me. And um, I pray for my, my most common prayer, especially this last year um, has been for generous wisdom. You know, if any of you lacks wisdom, uh, pray oh. to your father above who gives generously, um, you know, to oh. all who pray in faith. And yes. so I pray for generous wisdom and I have, man, God has done things in and through my life way beyond my ability. Um, and he continues to do so. And so I just keep humbly saying thank you and wow. And, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, we'll see what he's got for me next. Well, I mean, I think it's very self-serving that, of course, you, as James, quote, the book of James seems, you know, a People little bit. Of... believe me. It's my favorite book in the New Testament. <laughs> it has nothing to do with my name. Sure. We'll start calling you Jim just to make, to make don't, sure. That... Don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm a Jamie, incidentally, yeah. child of the eighties. I'm a Jamie, not a Jim. But... Oh, I, I don't, uh, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't, oh, I, I don't know about that. I don't know if I, oh, that, that just, that just feels all sorts of weird. Yeah. Um, it, when you said you were like a child of like this, uh, Seattle alternative grunge, yeah. like music, I went, well, that, if that's a niche, if I've never heard it before, <laughs> um, <laughs> just my taste in music, man. I had this super narrow, like if it didn't fit in that, in that niche, it wasn't real music yeah, for, I love for it. a long time. Yeah. You know, but it, thankfully God has grown me past that too. Well, the, the book of James has helped you obviously. Um, you know, <laughs> yes. One, yes. One he the, has. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I have to ask you because not, not many churches and, and maybe those who, who would be listening to this, you my, my church, we, we don't have, we can't even afford, I mean, I'm not full-time because, I mean, too small, I don't have a budget for it. And, and so the idea of an executive pastoral role, that, that for some people, they might not know what that is. Uh, and and it's not uncommon at all for larger churches that have, uh, have a staff um, that has like a burden of, I mean, what we're going to talk about in a second, you are the definition of the, of the in that attention or in the media, like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place all the time of, in, in my understanding, because the way I've seen and observed you from afar, I mean, you get, you get the, 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 I will say this, not because they're true, but from an appearance standpoint, you get the glamorous position sometimes of having being up there and, and being able to preach a wonderful message. And then you have the stuff that, I mean, it is the, the stuff that has to be done sometimes that, um, that you have to take on multiple roles, wear many, many multiple different hats and you do so, so well, it's like a, you chameleon yourself very well. And your attitude is, and for me, it's very admirable, but what, what is, what is the role of an executive pastor and specifically with your administrative and education 
background. Like I see that, you know, personally, but for the listener, like I see that in your life and how that transitioned really well, but how, how did the education apart lend to what your position is now and what is your position, I guess. I could ask yeah, that. So, uh, like you said, I'm, I'm, my title is executive pastor and that's it, it, not, um, it's not a super straightforward, it's not a super <laughs> straightforward answer to that question right? because, um, what an executive pastor does varies wildly from church to church. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of churches, uh, the person they hire to be like the executive pastor is, oftentimes just labeled associate pastor um, because it's the, you've got the lead pastor and then you've got the everything else pastor. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. You know? um, so in, so in a lot of cases, so our, our pre pandemic average weekly attendance was 1355. Um, that's everybody, kids, uh, everything from like birth to um, not quite, you know, grave, but close. Oh, sure. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so 1355. So as a church of over a thousand, um, uh, my, my role is, is highly, um, specialized. Um, and, and I, and I, and I love it. Uh, a fellow executive pastor, a friend of mine said, told me the other day, he described my position. He said, if I could do this, that would be ideal. And I said, that's my job. And he said, no, oh, must just all be rainbows and daisies over there. <laughs> I assure you it's not, but comparatively. So in a lot of churches, executive pastor has to do what I started doing, um, administration and leadership. So they manage the budget and the facilities and um, the majority of the staff uh, save maybe like the the worship leader and, and maybe like a youth pastor or something uh, report to the executive pastor and those other couple report to the lead pastor. Um, but in, but in our situation, um, we prioritize stewardship um, highly at our church. And so we have a dedicated position to stewarding the finances and facilities uh, and operations of the church. And that's our church administrator, which frees me up um, to really focus on ministry leadership. So, so what that breaks down to is it is the lead pastor's responsibility to to receive from God the vision for for our local church's participation in the Missio Day. So basically every every church has essentially the same mission statement, right? Go and make disciples. Yeah. Um, but what does your participation look like in that mission? Like that varies from church to church Absolutely. according to who God has given you and where God has placed you and how he's resourced you like materially and immaterially. And so... Um, so the lead pastor receives that vision, communicates it uh, with the church as a whole and with the staff as a whole, um, and has the responsibility week in and week out of um, preaching and teaching, you know, in this high level leadership. And then the exec, it's the executive pastor's responsibility to carry out that vision with continuity across the entire church. So basically that means I'm responsible for making sure our vision is executed um, for kids and teenagers and through music and technology and uh, hospitality and small groups ministry appropriately. Like, what does this look like in every one of those areas? And it's my job to support our pastors and to lead them 
as we like put the nuts and bolts on that vision. Um, so I get to basically, I just get to lead, 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 lead. Mm-hmm. And um, man, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's challenging, especially this last year has been the hardest leadership year of my life, but yeah, um, I could only imagine. And that, but that it's, has, yeah. And, 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 and be able to do that, have that specific position. How, how did the administrative side of your education background and career, how, how did that, do you use that every day? I mean, I can't imagine you not taking some examples all the time of like, I remember that time this happened or, and like, I can apply that here. Or when I learned this in school, I mean, I can, I can see that cause you, you shepherd the staff and you, and you shepherd the vision so well. And you, and by the way, you communicate it very clearly too. I, there was never a time I ever came to you with a question, even if it was truly the answer was, I don't know. It was a reassuring, I don't know, or, Hey, that's a good question. Let me get back with you. And you were a, always able to be concise. You're not somebody that's vague when you give an answer. I I've always applauded you on that. You talk to me in day of the week, you're going to get a different answer sometimes, but you know, for, for you, I, I applaud you. I'm like, there's not a conversation. I go away thinking, I wonder, I really wonder what James meant when yeah. he said that. Like, no, I, I, you're, you're such a good vision caster. So does that come from being able to have to communicate with seven-year-olds? Cause if you're not a really good teacher to seven-year-olds, you can't communicate an idea clearly. Uh, that's on you. That's not the kid's fault. Yeah. I think, um, so I think two, two big things, um, I'm sure there's a lot under, under the surface that influenced me that I, I don't even realize, but, but two big things, um, that I know influenced me were yes, communicating to seven-year-olds. Um, absolutely. Not only that. So I, I taught first grade for four years. I taught second grade, um, for four years, two of those years overlap because for two of those four, I taught first and second graders at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that really helped how do I communicate like at the beginning of the year, you know, there's a huge difference between a first grader starting the year and a second grader starting the year. And, and so like learning how to communicate with these kids who are basically kindergartners and these kids who are like just starting second grade, um, that helped. I also, when I was a Dean, I worked with kindergarten through second grade my first year and then middle schoolers the next two years. And so I had to shift, um, from the littlest kids in our building to the oldest kids in our building. And, and I had to do discipline for whoever came through the office. Um, so I would literally be sitting down and talking to a five-year-old about what he did that got him sent to the office and what was wrong about it and what to do next time and how like teaching kids how to apologize and why that's important to an eighth grader who cussed out his teacher um, 30 minutes later um, and having to have conversations like, look, man, like seriously, you're going to tell me you didn't understand that that was wrong. Like get real, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so I had to learn how to pivot my communication. Like I had to turn on a dime. Um, and I, thankfully I was trained well. Um, I, I went to workshops and, and seminars and, um, like days long trainings. And I learned a lot about, um, just the human side of communication. And I carried that with me. So, so being able to, um, adjust communication according to the audience, um, I learned that big time through teaching. Cause you don't, 
you don't teach to a room full of people for seven and a half hours a day without learning how to effectively communicate with them. Yeah. Um, and, well, and keep um, your job basically. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Um, and, and then the other thing was, um, how the, and this is like more when I was a Dean and an instructional coach, um, just how to have professional conversations, how to, um, step into somebody else's shoes and experience something from their perspective and then step out of their shoes and coach them to where, you know, they need to get right. So I learned how to have really effective one-on-one -on -one meetings. Uh, I, I learned how to, um, look for, uh, details to tweak and refine, to continually be striving for improvement. I learned how, how to identify goals and to always strive toward those goals. Um, I am, uh, we have staff values at the church and, um, our lead pastor now, Bryce, he tells me all the time, you're really good about working those values into the language that you use all the time. It's because I see them everywhere. And I think that comes from my experience at the school. Um, we, we had, um, these like moral, moral focus, we called them these like character trait values that we taught every month. And it was literally my job to go around the school, looking for students, executing those values, and then to acknowledge them for it. Um, I learned how to look for things and call them out in a positive way. And that's a big part of what I do. It's a huge part of what I do, um, now as an executive pastor. So, uh, those are the, those are, I think the, the biggest, uh, the biggest things that, and I was just always being a charter school. Um, there's less bureaucracy, so things can change a lot faster. Um, we had a trailblazing, oh, yeah. we had a trailblazing principle. Most of the, most of the time I was, uh, at the, my, my second school here in Jackson, where I was there the longest. And, um, so working for a trailblazer within a trailblazing type of organization, um, we were changing all the time, all the time. And so uh, I just sort of was professionally raised up in this environment of um, make it better, make it better, make it better, make it better. Okay. And yeah, that's kind of, that's a driving thing. For well, me. Yeah, that makes perfect sense uh, considering, I mean, the, the reason why I ask is not just for the benefit of the listener. Like these are questions I've, I've wanted to be able to ask you, but you know, on a Sunday morning when we were both there, like, Hey James, you got 45 minutes to sit down and talk <laughs> with me about my curiosities. I mean, yeah. this makes complete sense considering um, your, your attitude and not just, not just because of uh, this last year, and the wrench that's thrown in a lot of people's plans, but you've, I mean, you, you've vented I mean, a little bit of frustration with maybe the logistics, but never once did I ever see you uh, offer any like, complaints like this is ridiculous. I can't believe we have to do this. It's like, no, it's hey, it, uh, the paradigm going forward is that we, that there's no paradigm and that it's constantly shifting. Like yeah. that's okay. And I, I think it's, I mean, that has, that attitude has to be reassuring to other people because as they, if because different personalities, different experiences, but if they're reporting to you and they can see that you're fine, that's going to reassure them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, and maybe that's one of the reasons now I find myself like, well, well, James, you know, he's pretty, he's a pretty steady person. You know, I don't see you like, well, it's, it's a Tuesday afternoon. I probably shouldn't ask James this particular question <laughs> today. Um, well, I, I, I really appreciate that insight there because, Part of that, that willingness, I, I have to think, is 
it has to be connected. It, it, it's not it, easy going. It cheapens it. Uh, I, I think there's also an aspect of like humility and not taking ourselves too seriously. I think that's really a, that's a theological thing for me is that I think us humans have a tendency to take ourselves way too seriously. And, and, and part of that is when we're ever facing any sort of rebuke or when we hear those sermons that you had mentioned, you first heard at Jack's Naz, that just kind of bounces off us like, eh, at least that's not me. Um, but you have this knack, I would say almost to an, I mean, annoyingly so, because you're, you're so good at it, that uh, I'm sometimes envious of. If you are very steady and very calm, and of course, as a teacher, you kind of had to be, you couldn't be like, oh my gosh, this five-year-old did what? And then just act, <laughs> throw a temper tantrum. But you exist in what you call, like to call like the messy middle or this tension between two arguments. I'm, or, I mean, it transcends like conservative, liberal, you know, Republican, Democrat, left, right, up or down, uh, black, white. Um, but we're talking about like just the church and staying centered on, you know, you, you hold true to your central values and traditional values, orthodox beliefs of the church and the church in Nazarene, as do I. But you, I would say, willingly subject yourself to, well, somebody else is saying this other thing. You just or have this ability to just stay in the middle and where, where does that passion come from? Obviously it comes from God, but has that always been something in your life? And how, how do, how does what James Haldane uh, practice? How does what you practice every day? How can the rest of us learn that? Um, well, I'm a middle child. So <laughs> in some level, I think I was just destined to live in this lane. Um, <laughs> I, um, a lot of it, uh, this is a, this is a, maybe a boring response, but a lot of it is just the way I'm wired. Um, I've always been more of a don't rock the boat kind of guy. Like when I was, so as a, as a middle child growing up, my older brother used to lie a lot. Um, that was just, we all have our flaws. We all have our shortcomings. We all have the, th our, the temptations we succumb to whatever. And so for whatever reason, um, when we were kids, like that was his thing. Um, and most of the time, as far as I'm aware, it was pretty hard, harmless kind of stuff, like exaggerating things that happened, you know, telling things that, man, I wish this thing would have happened when actually it's not what happened, but telling it as though it is, you know, that kind of thing. But his lies got him in trouble, and I and I saw that um, several times. I saw him get grounded, punished, um, whatever, uh, when he got caught in these things. My younger brother um, was nicknamed Mouth, um, which is probably still an appropriate nickname for him, even though he's almost forty. Um, <laughs> and, and and so he would he would just. Uh, he would push my parents' buttons on purpose um, and he would get in trouble for it. And so I watched my brothers and I was like, okay, don't do that. And don't do that. Just stay in the middle. Just stay in the middle. And oh my gosh. Um, I stayed out of trouble for the most part, like m most of my childhood. And my brothers now, because they know it drives me crazy, they call me my mom's favorite. Um, and, and I think think it's because I didn't get in as much trouble as them, but that's thanks to them. Yeah. 
trouble, right? So I learned, I learned early on in life just to kind of like watch what was happening around me and, and stick to the middle. Um, I'm also a, a pretty good empathizer. Um, I, I went through some stuff uh, when I was in, and we don't have time to get into it in this podcast anyway, but I went through some stuff when I was in middle school, some, some really traumatic things mm. that happened pretty close together. And it, it really broke me for a number of years. And, um, I think it created in me this sensitivity to other people's brokenness and, and God rescued me from that brokenness. I didn't recognize it as God so much at the time. I, it was sort of like a time to pull yourself up from the bootstraps kind of mentality, but, um, but I think having been broken, um, so severely, I, I gained this perspective of like in the midst of that time, I, I engaged in some things that were, that were pretty self-destructive and, um, uh, looking back on it, you know, you read things in like developmental psychology, which I had to take as a part of my undergrad and, um, just reading articles and listening to people talk about like how emotional, um, people's emotional needs, uh, manifest and how, when there's a lack of a basic emotional need, like kids will lash out. Um, that's where a lot of behavior problems in schools come from. Uh, I like, I would see my brokenness in kids that would come to the front office when they were getting in trouble. I would see my brokenness in my peers when they were bad mouthing our boss. I would see, um, my brokenness, like just all around me and God gave me the ability to like hit the pause button and step into that brokenness and go ask the kind of ask the questions to, to, you know, do you think this has anything to do with X? And then people would go over and over again. Yeah. You know, I think it might. And I saw fruit from that right away. And so I just kept pursuing it, you know, like, because I'm helping people, I'm oh, shepherding. Sure. And um, incidentally, shepherding is one of my top leadership, shepherding and faith are my top three spiritual gifts. And so it makes sense that um, uh, shepherding would <laughs> like, w would be the thing that um, kind of has cultivated this stepping into the middle, standing in the middle, drawing, trying to pull, it's turned into this, like, I want to pull you into the middle with me um, kind of life. And so this is, this has actually been sort of, uh, this has been a revealing conversation for me. Cause I don't think I even realized all of this stuff about myself until just now. Um, <laughs> and we but, just call um, this therapy. Uh, I appreciate it. I'll yeah. send you a check. Um, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. So, so just that, that stepping in and seeing God do his thing with that stepping in. And, um, I also grew up in an environment, like I grew up on the, so Jackson isn't for people who don't know, um, Jackson's a smallish community. Um, we're not super ethnically diverse. I mean, we're not really ethnically diverse, no. we're like 80 something percent Caucasian. Um, I grew up about half a mile away from uh, the, uh, 
the part of our town that uh, where there's a higher concentration of African-American men and women and, and kids. Um, and so my neighborhood was pretty diverse growing up because I was kind of on the fringe of that part of town. Um, so my two of my best friends growing up um, were, were black kids. And it's not that I didn't see color. Um, I definitely did. Um, color blindness is a whole nother conversation. I don't want to get into that right now. But um, uh, I remember talking to my best friend, Kenneth, growing up and asking him, do you get sunburned? Like, how does that work? You know, oh, yeah. like, yeah. And so um, I, I, it was just normal for me to, to um, experience things differently. Like, so even that was like my childhood best friend, my other, when I was in fifth grade, uh, one of my best friends, um, same kind of story. Um, so before I went through all that junk, when I was in middle school, um, I guess, uh, differences were just around me and I was wired in a way to appreciate and not criticize them. Um, so this is just part of you uh, yeah. for the very beginning, that this is something that, that it's not just something you feel called to. It's, it's been engineered in, in your life in such a way that whether you like it or not, you've been put in that position. I mean, like uh, just hilarious, you know, being the middle child, you know, like, <laughs> duh, uh, it, whether you, it's a fact of the matter. You're in the median, whether you want want to be or not. And like that's that's so cool because being able to use those circumstances mm-hmm. and then apply them to something that's a, that's truly a holy calling, like that's amazing. You want to talk about people seeing God in everything, and uh, in, in the smallest of smallest of things, sometimes to the most obvious, He's there the entire time. He doesn't just come in and pop up, pop in, pop out just randomly when he feels like it. He's always there. It's just whether, you know, or not we're seeking him. And, you know, so those things can all be independently true. But even somebody who could have a similar story like yourself, like the, the question I want to ask, how do you resist the temptation to just run to the other? How do you keep yourself in that tension to be able to be objective, to be able to play a media, a mediary or be, be able to say, okay, I have my own beliefs here. I'm not going to compromise them, but in order to empathize with somebody, it still takes a, a maturity that for a lot of people, they don't have to not want to run from that and, or, or not, you know, just say like, all right, well, I can do this, but I'm going to choose not to, because I know what I believe. I know that I'm right. And I don't have time to listen to this other crazy person right now. Um, you know, a, a lot of that comes down to, it's, it's really, uh, it's a couple of things. Um, number one, and this isn't necessarily in order of like primacy or anything. Um, it's not value ordered, but, um, first thing that comes to mind is I don't, Aside from, um, aside from Jesus, um, and this, this might sound like I'm really overselling it or just like such a pastor response, right? But aside from Jesus, I don't have strong opinions about very many things. Um, I, I really just don't. Um, I only have so much emotional energy to spend uh, in a given day. Um, I'm not going to waste it on things that aren't worthy of my time and energy. Uh, I spent a lot of time um, in school getting both of my master's degrees 
just working long hours as an administrator. And when I first worked at the church, um, when my workload was kind of out of balance and stuff, um, at the cost of quality family time, at the cost of like appropriate interactions with my kids, meaning like they would do something minorly irritating and I would blow up at them, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and I learned the hard way, like I have a limited capacity for what I can expend my emotional energy on and I need to steward that well. Mm. And so I learned fairly, once I made that realization, I, I learned pretty quickly um, how to kind of pace my energy um, on sort of a daily basis uh, because my kids and my wife deserve better of me than what I was giving them for a long time. Um, so I, you know, you identify those triggers and then you work to eliminate them. Um, periodically I fast from social media. Um, my last fast was 30 days. It started out as a 30 day fast. I didn't get on Facebook except for, I helped manage the church's, um, social media account. So aside from work, I didn't get on Facebook for four months mm. because after being off of it for a month, I found my life. I was less irritated. I was less frustrated with people. I was thinking less negative stuff about friends of mine. Um, I, because I still have those opinions and I, and I still have very one-sided views on things, but in the end, they just don't matter. They're, they're things that are not eternal. And, and so like, I need to focus on things that are eternal. Like my kids need to see Jesus in me every day, um, mm. unquestionably. And so, um, so it becomes a matter of just stewarding my emotional energy. Um, when, so this last year, you know, there's so many things that have been tough about this last year. Um, not the least of which is, um, all the racial reconciliation stuff and the need for racial reconciliation and um, all of the like questions around like black lives matter as a statement, like black lives matter mm -hmm. and as an organization and, and their ideals, you know? Um, and the fact that like, I had to learn, I can't even have a conversation with those three words in it. Um, with certain people in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not going to touch it. Um, however, there are other people in my life that um, I, I need to learn more. So I would go to them and say, Hey, one of my favorite phrases to use is, can you help your ignorant white friend out? Um, <laughs> which one of, yeah. one of my closest, one of my closest uh, friends, when I worked at the school, I used to go to him with that line often. And he would say, if you're identifying yourself as ignorant, you're not nearly as ignorant as you think you are. Um, which great. is helpful. Yeah, you know? of course. And so it's that kind of, that kind of like humility to be able to say, I don't have all of the answers. Um, to be able to say, I don't even know what my opinion is on this. Um, to ask myself, okay, so how... I mean, not to get super like 90s cliche, but like, what would Jesus do? Like, what did, I don't like, what would Jesus do? I like, what did Jesus do? Um, what, what do we get in scripture from, and what does Jesus do, right? Um, what does scripture give us that would give us some guidelines on how we should live our lives in this current climate? And 
And when I couldn't get there on my own, I would go and I do still like go and ask for input and then learn like people are in our lives for a reason. My, my wife taught me this when we were first dating, there are relationships in our lives that exist for a reason, for a season and for a lifetime. And um, there are people in my life who I'm sure God put them in my life for reasons. I've told stories about some of them in this very conversation. And I'm, there was that reason, but I believe also perhaps there's a season and some of those relationships probably won't still be intact five years from now because we have gotten divergent on topics that to one of us or the other are so central to who we are that we're running out of things to base our relationship on anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you know what? That's okay. Um, and I think that that leads me to the, to the last thing, like, how do I balance this being in the middle thing? Um, I'm a realist. And so, um, as I'm, as I'm stewarding my emotional energy and I'm, and I'm thinking about what Jesus has taught and is teaching me about how to respond to situations and how to engage in things, um, I'm, I'm just not really active. I'm not a, um, you're not going to see me putting flags in my front yard. Um, you're not going to see me putting bumper stickers on my car. You're not going to see me standing out in front of some organization in town protesting. That's just, that's just not how I operate. Um, you can tell a tree by its fruit, right? Scripture doesn't tell us you can tell a tree by its flag. Um, or by the bumper sticker or by its protest sign. And I'm, I'm not trying to get down on people no. who call to that. I've got some dear friends who are huge yeah. inspirations to me that are all about that style of um, expression. It's just not me. Mm -hmm. um, and for some people, that's not okay to them, which uh, that's the funny part. Is yeah, that if, yeah. if you believe this, then you should do this. And it's like, man, that's a, that's a hard place, no matter where you're coming from on any topic that, um, I think that's where social media is that I don't really, you, you brought in social media. Like that's such a good thing to be able to purge yourself from it. Cause it seems as if that um, beyond social media, that it's my job to get other people to think the way that I do. And if somebody out there who I don't know, doesn't agree with me, that hurts me. Like mm -hmm. that, I, that's where I'm thinking like, how in the world do you play the intermediary and in people who are that far apart, who have no desire to be reconciled but yet um that doesn't that ought not to stop the christian from doing the christian message because it didn't stop jesus because well he didn't say well i know these people are still gonna reject me anyway then well, what's the point you know uh, we just got over we're in easter tide now what are we celebrating the fact that he did resurrect so in order to resurrect he had to die and for him to die, he still had to do the Father's will, which is the goal of reconciliation for all of humanity. So I'm, try, I'm seeing what you're saying and looking at the broader narrative of that. If the motive is still, well, we we ought to do this. This is something we must do as Christians. But talking, you'd say emotional energy. Like I'm, I'm sitting on the sidelines with my, and my and face in my palms, just going, oh my gosh. And yet you're just like, yeah, oh, just another day, just another day at the office. I'm like, what? How do you have the, how? I don't understand how you do it. I, I'm the one who gets so emotional about it too. So you, you have to look, this is going to sound really, this is going to sound really 
crass. <laughs> you have to learn to just not care. Um, like, yeah. did Jesus sit up at night wringing his hands about how people were reacting to the things that he was saying? Did, did he like, <laughs> did he lose sleep over the fact that like, uh, people were mad at him because of what he was proclaiming. No, he said, you know what? People are going to hate you, but guess what? They hated yeah. me first. So it's all right. Um, <laughs> oh, it's too much truth. It's too much truth. Uh, yeah, I think- I've learned. So I, I actually struggled with that. I will, I will say this. And I know like I'm spending lots of time in all kinds of details in this conversation, but how dare you do that in a podcast where I'm asking <laughs> for it. Yeah. Uh, but, but I, I'll say this. Um, not too long, a couple of years, maybe after I got into ministry, um, I, I really struggled with this. Like um, I'd look around during a worship service on a Sunday morning and there'd be this really powerful spirit led like worship happening all around me. People are crying and hands are in the air. And, you know, in our congregation, like that doesn't happen a lot. No. And, and I'm looking around going, what am I missing? Like, oh yeah. Of, like, Scripture says, like, remove the heart of stone and create in me a heart of flesh. But I feel like the opposite thing has happened. And, and I would like, I, I struggled with it. And I would I'd, I'd sit down and have counseling sessions with people. And they'd be like, like, crying themselves blind. And I would just be sitting there listening to them without an emotional movement. And, and I'm like, what is wrong with me? And I sought out some counsel from a colleague and, and a longtime friend of mine. And, and I was just like, what, what's, what's my damage? Like, literally, what do you think is wrong with me? And uh, I said, I think I have a heart of stone. Ministry has given me a heart of stone. And she said, maybe it's that God has given provision. Maybe God has brought to you this level of maturity that allows you to kind of compartmentalize a little bit um, and kind of, you know, as guys, we have our box, our brains are divided into boxes. Mark Gunger tells us. And um, so like, I'm able to like step out of one box and into another box. And when I'm, when I'm in the midst of highly emotional situations, I'm able to like maintain an objective point of view, um, which helps me to pull people to the middle. Because when you're on one side or the other, you're stuck in subjectivity. Sure. And you don't think you are because from your perspective on your one side, it looks very objective, but, but you're stuck in subjectivity. And, and I think objectivity is when you can stand in a spot and see where both sides are coming from um, and try to pull those sides together toward the middle. Um, like that's, that comes from this place of kind of compartmentalization. It doesn't mean we have hearts of stone. It just means we're able to separate ourselves from it. And that's where that realist kind of comes in. Um, take the emotion out of it and, and just look at it from a, as objective a point of view as possible. Now that's not to say I don't get emotional about stuff. It's not to say I don't carry up periodically. I, when we could, you know, remember when Jackson still had movie theaters um, and when people <laughs> could still do things in public. Um, I remember going to like, I don't remember which one it was, but I swear it was yeah. one of the MCU movies. And, and it wasn't like Endgame where everybody's like, you're going to cry at the end, um, which I didn't, um, Heart of Stone. <laughs> but, um, but it was some other, oh, it was, it was Spider-Man Homecoming and he's under all of this like concrete. And I'm like, you can do it, Peter Parker. <laughs> up. 
I'm I'm not completely like, you know, unfeeling, but um, but I just have this ability to step into objectivity, and I think that all comes from those things I said before, the the um, be, being a realist and uh, learning how to steward my emotional energy and like looking at the big picture and thinking about um, just trying to look as much like Jesus as I can. Um, as I walked that line. And after all, wasn't Jesus notorious when given two options? Wasn't he notorious for going, oh yeah, but what about this? Um, there's a third thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. That... <laughs> uh, the, the, this, this notion that, you know, I, I, I feel the same way. And, you know, it's funny, like, I, I, I think I told you about this, but um, when I, on Good Friday, we had five churches come together for worship, of all different backgrounds and styles. And you knew who the Wesleyans were just sitting, you know, it's prim and proper while a lot of charismatic people are together doing their thing. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I got my mom to my left crying. My grandma's crying. My aunt's crying. People around me crying about this thing. And I'm just sitting there just kind of like when my, my brow furrowed, really listening to the, the, the exegetical part of this guy's message. Like, is, is he interpreting the Bible the way I would do it? Of course, that's all about me at that point, but I'm, but I'm still thinking of, I'm trying to listen to the message. Like what's this point behind the message? And there's a lot of other stuff out there. That's, that's great. But I, I thought the same thing of like, am I callous here? Like, am I, am I, am I only doing it not to give into peer pressure or not to follow the crowd? Or am I just not an emotionally uh, driven person or you have all these things and I'm like, wait a minute, all that stuff's still distracting. Like, why am I here? I've come to worship, just worship in the way that, that, that is, that's me. That's not fake. And, and then for a lot of people, you know, that was a huge thing. Olivet too, is like, everyone's hands are raised. Maybe I'll raise my hand. And, um, and there goes the whole intermediary. If you, everyone's following each other. And yeah. I, I think, you know, for me too, if, if one side's yelling, and another side's yelling and they're like, Michael, you play the referee. I'm going to yell too. Uh, and that's, that, that's just not where I'm good. That's why, again, I, I admire like your, that, that gift. It, it is, it's just, it's a God given gift. And you mentioned, you just, you mentioned this, this kind of like this, this idea of, uh, oh, not well, just kind of an idea, but what Jesus did, did, did he stay up at night? You know, thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I can't believe they kicked me out of town. I can't believe they yell, yell at me. I can't believe all this stuff. And then yet he says, you know, they will hate, you will be hated because of me. And, you know, for us in this society, for many Christians, I, I think in this last year, finally maybe experiencing a little bit of kickback and unfortunately it has to be more so with each other, which is that's a whole other conversation. But like those types of passages of scripture feel so alien, so foreign to, to our ears because we can run to a circle that agrees with everything we say. We have the luxury of that, and whether it's on social media, it's in our own lives. Um, so if you want to fit the bill of a conservative, white, evangelical Christian, and you want to put all those labels, you can find probably a podcast for it. And you can find like a group of people that will just be an echo chamber of your own ideas. And so when anything else tries to invade that circle, you're obviously going to push back because you've got a bunch of allies over here that are smart people that have your back. And those people aren't wrong. And when, when we're so divided in that way, and then, then Jesus comes back in and says, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're like, Oh, of course it's those other Christians that hate me so much. You're like, no, 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 it's not, that's not what he was 
that's not really what it was talking about. And, and so I'm wondering, do you think that plays a role, at least here in America, of how far removed we are from, from persecution? And not to say in this last year we haven't seen. I mean, we're seeing that, you know, in a certain form in Canada with that pastor who's now in a maximum security prison for, you know, for his church. And I'm, I'm not making a moral judgment on that. It's just that that is something that has happened. And for a lot of people, they never thought they would see that. And, and now there's maybe some kickback from the, from the media uh, and from more of a scientific age. The, the idea of faith is unreasonable. You're starting to possibly see that more and more. But for the longest time, I don't know if we could relate to that. And at the same time, you have people throwing mud at us and like, I don't want to be the ones throwing mud back. Like, again, we have, we're called to that. And they, I'm so glad you brought up that Jesus point because yeah, he wasn't staying awake at night thinking about, oh, I, they ju- if they just would have understood my post. Okay. <laughs> well, and here's the thing, man. Like I learned this lesson the hard way. I wish I could say that like this maturity has just been with me since birth or something, but <clears throat> um, I spent enough nights sleepless obsessing over uh, comment thread conversations. You know, when, when oh. we have a oh, dialogue yes. on somebody's Facebook post instead of having a conversation or even like just a messenger back and forth instead of doing it publicly. Um, I had enough of those debates that went nowhere and left me sleepless that I realized this is really stupid. Like, what that's where that emotional energy stewardship lesson was really like the final nail in that coffin, man, because what am I doing? I'm not going to, I'm not making, and I'm not going to make any progress on this ground, trying to prove that I'm right. And this person's wrong. So like, what's the point? What's the point in this? Like, and usually when I get into that kind of debate with somebody, it's, it's in an attempt to draw them to the middle, but our culture sees middle as weak or non-participatory. Yeah, exactly. It's a cop-out. Um, it's apathy, right? Yeah. Like you got to take a stand. Well, yeah. I'm taking a stand and the stand is the third way because that's what my savior showed me how to do. Um, but, but people that we don't, our culture doesn't, ex- especially in this day and age, they don't accept that as a viable option. And so I've just learned to stop. That's the realist in me. Like I've learned to stop trying. Um, and, and there are people who, um, l- like we said before, would like vehemently disagree with that approach. And you know what? Here, I'm just, I'm just going to live right in the middle. Like yeah. that's okay for them. You know what? Go for it. Because if the Lord, and I'm talking about pastor friends of mine, if the Lord is calling you to advocate that way um, and to take those lumps, then, then by golly, like follow the Lord. Yeah. But he's calling me to this messy middle. He's calling me to this tension. And um, frankly, I like the tension um, because I feel a little bit more like Jesus when I'm in the tension. I, I feel a little bit more like, and what I mean by that, like, let me not make myself sound... I don't know. I don't want to elevate myself too highly. Right. Um, I, I guess I feel a little more covered by covered by the dust of the rabbi when I'm in that tension. I feel like I'm a little bit closer to his heels. I feel like I'm walking a little nearer to Jesus when I stand in that tension because his earthly ministry was full 
of that pension. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And, and I think that's where, and I want to ask you this, this, this closing question here, because this is, this is fundamentally important now is that Jesus was firm with what he came to do and what he came to preach, but he also existed in that tension without alienating the, the message and who it was for. So he stuck true to what he believed and what his calling was, but without, without the motive of pushing people away. Uh, if anything, uh, again, it's always like us, it's the church that like the heaviest words Jesus spoke. And so for many who could say like, well, I'm going to choose the middle because there really isn't a black or white side here. There isn't really a right or wrong because who's to say there's not a right or wrong. So how do we, how do we continue to exist in the tension, not let it turn into apathy on our own part or not stand up for the truth of the gospel. Like there's a point of where I am standing on the gospel. The gospel is a hard message. It's an exclusive truth claim. It's going to alienate people just because it exists, but it's incumbent upon us. Like how do we make that message available to people without compromising it? So how do you exist in the middle without compromising your, your beliefs? Um, uh, it's attributed to St. Francis. I don't know if he was the first one to say it or not, but, um, preach the gospel at all times. And when necessary, use words. Yeah. Um, I, this makes me think of, um, uh, my youngest brother. So I said earlier, I'm a middle child. There's, there's actually, uh, four of us. Um, so it's my older brother, myself, my younger brother. And then like 11 years later, my half brother was born my dad he has a different mom and um so i grew up as a middle child primarily i was 13 when my youngest brother was born um and he uh he's gay and he came out um a few years ago and um none of us were really surprised he actually when we talked about it the first time he said oh you knew i was gay like 10 years before i did um Uh, it was probably true. And um, uh, it didn't change the fact that I, like how I felt about my brother didn't change. How I interacted with my brother didn't change. Um, and, and now I believe that God's intention uh, for marriage is to be between one man and one woman uh, for a lifetime. That's not a very middle of the road kind of stance, but, sure. but I believe that um respecting historical and cultural context without trying to make scripture say something that it doesn't necessarily say. I I believe that's a good biblical stance. Now, I don't want to open up all kinds of debate on that or anything, but, um, uh, but that's just where I'm at, right? People are in all kinds of different places with that. And I bring that up because I reached a point where I'm the only person in my family who has that stance. Yeah. Yeah. The only one. And I felt like I was keeping the secret from my brother. I felt like he thought we were all on the same page because this is just something we've never talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I got this conviction in me that was like, you, you've got to talk to him. Like he needs to, he has a right to know where you stand on this. Um, so talk to him because quite frankly, um, if you like keep this from him and you try to minister to him, um, cause he has kind of an on again, off mostly relationship with the church. Um, 
and I can't speak to his relationship with the Lord, but trees and fruit would say probably the same. And um, I thought you, you want to minister to your family. Um, and you, if you, if you hold this back and then bring it up later, it's going to be like a one, two punch kind of thing. And that's, that's not very Jesus like, So I took him out to lunch um, probably two years ago. I took him out to lunch um, with my intentions being perfectly clear um, up front. Cause again, I didn't want sucker punch him. And I was like, I just need to let you know, like, this is what I believe. Um, and and it, he, the look on his face, man, it hurt. It hurt him. It hurt me to hurt him. Um, there was a, uh, a really great conversation between the two of us over the rest of that lunch. Um, and we ended the day well. And then we didn't really interact. He lives uh, like an hour away. We don't interact a ton anyway. But um, there was like this kind of distance. And then I was intentional about closing that distance. And, and at Christmas this year, I, I picked him up from his place, drove him back here, took him back home, um, and then drove back home again. We ended up having like five hours in the car because of weather oh, um, together. And um, while he was here, he was telling me all about his boyfriend um, and all about uh, what, he's, what he's studying and... Um, how their relationship is going and all this other stuff that they're talking about and how happy he is. And you know what, man, and this is going to be a statement that's going to sound like a contradiction to what I've just been saying, but I was really happy for my brother because my brother is happy. Um, now that's weird because, yeah, um, I can understand. I, I'm, you know, like here's the tension. I'm happy yeah. for my brother, though. I don't believe that this is what God wants for his life. Um, but I'm not going to convince him that this is what God wants for his life by speaking it into his ear, by taking those five hours in the car and condemning him for a lifestyle that I think is yeah. different from what God wants. I'm not, yeah. That's more about you at that point. That's not about yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. So you know what I did? I listened and I asked him questions and I tried to like understand, get to know this guy a little bit. And um, I told him that I was happy for him. And on the drive home, um, as he's like vaping in my car and like talking about getting wasted and high with his friends and like um, describing this lifestyle that I'm like, Oh Jesus, help my brother. <laughs> yeah. um, I was so grateful for that time. And I, and all I did, he was telling me all about his life. I told him all about my life and, and how we're, how we're promoting like, abstinence with our kids and the importance of biblical foundations for marriage and like all of this other stuff, because it's what's relevant in my life. And he cares about his niece and his nephew. And so like we have this completely open and honest and frank and vulnerable um, dialogue in both of those occasions, that lunch, which I think paved the way for these conversations at Christmas time this year, um, where we could just be real with each other. And you know yeah. what? I've got a better opportunity to share with him what I think God's desire is for his life and the love and the hope that Jesus has for him still now, after just being myself and being open and vulnerable and loving with him than I would have if I tried to cram my theology down his throat. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's my approach, right? That's, that's how I like navigate 
this, this tension of like not excluding the gospel truth um, while still like saying the hard things, you know, um, I have, I have now it's my brother. So the relationship there is kind of built in, but like, um, I mean, I guess it, it could have not been cause I could have ostracized him years ago um, or he could have done the same to me. Uh, but it, it's the, it's the relationship. Um, I just got to love him because you know what? He is a person for whom Jesus Christ died. Um, he is a person made in the image of God. He is one of the people that Jesus wants to be reconciled before he comes back. And just maybe Jesus wants to use me to help facilitate that reconciliation. Like I don't do the reconciling, but maybe I can be an agent um, in this ministry of reconciliation. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to just be a good human to him. Um, yeah. I'm going to be as Jesus to him as I can. And uh, hopefully God will create avenues and give me the courage to walk down them uh, to tell him about the gospel, um, to remind him of the truth that he's already heard. And woe to any of us who get in the way of God reconciling his people back to himself. Like talk about something I do not want to be held accountable for on judgment day is saying, you know, I had a really good plan, you know, and I had to use somebody else through another means. But, uh, uh, you remember that one time when you did this and you thought it was for the other person, but it was really about you. Yeah. That was a setback. And, uh, here, let me show you the data on that. <laughs> <laughs> let me show you the conversation and what yeah. happened. Like, Oh my gosh. And, and that's the thing is like, what, what are we doing it for? It exposes motive. That's what it does is what you just talked about. It exposes our motive in it. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Like, what did Jesus do instead of what would he do? Mm -hmm. um, I've been going back through um, some of the episodes of The Chosen that was released last year. And then the season two that was premiere. I, I have never cried so much uh, in, in a year when it comes to like just my life in general and ministry. It's been so humbling, full of many, many great things. But like this TV show, um, that doesn't take the astronomical leaps. Like, I don't know if Jesus would have been on a skateboard, uh, you know, type of uh, moments. Um, but like, take a little bit of creative freedom, but talk about putting the, the actual action on Jesus. And like, I'm thinking all the stuff I say online, all those interactions I have, like, I know this is an actor reading a script, but it's like, that's how I would picture Jesus. Like objectively, like he's not going to be the one on social media, trying to justify or reclarify or edit a comment or in person yelling just as loud as everybody else and throwing mud. He's the calm of the storm. And I'm like, oh, and I think when you say you feel like more dust of the rabbi, that I have, I will absolutely affirm the fact that you you're not saying i am jesus you're saying you're getting closer to jesus by channeling this this place that is seldom traveled i will say is seldom traveled and like because it's hard oh my gosh it's hard it's so much easier to to just well you know this person says this this person says this well i think this and i'm really right i'm gonna go tell those people how they're both very wrong like that's easy that's what comes naturally like sin selfishness um, you know, pride, that stuff just comes naturally, you know, to us humans, you know, and um, when I look at the gospel message, like that is where Jesus was all the time. And I'm so grateful 
uh, for people like you just in my life, but for other people to see how God has used you, not just through your entire life as you've testified to it just now, but you have the God-given gift to do that. And I think that's within all of us. Uh, it's just whether or not we want to acquiesce our own control and trying to separate, at least in my mind, like what truly matters and what really just doesn't, what served as, as a distraction. Now, what would, what would Satan rather have me doing? And I can relate totally to that anxiety on a post on Facebook or to a conversation I had. And it comes back to you. If they just would only agree with me, then I would not have high blood pressure at the moment. Well, and I'll tell you, man, lest, lest I allow the middle to sound like some kind we talked about this already, but like this wishy-washy non-stance position, oh, um, yes. the one side or the other is characterized by indignation, righteous or not, right? Like, is it this, like you were just saying, like, they just need to agree with me. They just need to see it from where I'm coming from in the middle, man, it's full of heartbreak. Um, oh. Yes. I, I, I finished that story about my brother and then my mind went to that drive home where I was by myself for about oh. an hour and a half or so. And, and I was like, you know what? Um, I remember that night and my heart was so heavy. Um, and thinking about it now, like uh, I already spent all this time talking about how I'm not emotive. Like it brings tears to my eyes because my heart is broken for how far from Jesus my brother is. And uh, the middle is not like this wishy-washy soft place. Um, it's, it's objectivity is not wishy-washy or it's not like dismissive of the emotion that comes with subjectivity. If anything, um, it it's, takes the this way or that way and it throws it out and it says, okay, so this way and that way, and, I, and I'm stepping into the burdens and the passions of both of those sides and I'm pulling the weight of both of those sides on myself so that maybe I can shine a little bit of Jesus, like the Holy Spirit alive in me into this situation. Um, into this conversation. Um, and that is heavy and hard ministry. And I don't mean ministry like what I get paid to do. I mean ministry like I am a disciple of Jesus Christ and this is my life. And so um, it's hard uh, and it's exhausting. And, uh, but his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And yeah. so... Um, I know that the, this present suffering pales in comparison to the joy that is set before us. Uh, and so I hold on with hope to, uh, the prize that awaits, um, and just pray that the Lord will equip me to finish strong, um, in this tension that I asked for because mm. it's what Jesus has called me to. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I would say that uh, as, a, as a fellow brother and pastor, I please continue to do that because you're an example to, to the community uh, when you do that. Uh, you certainly had it. Uh, you will continue to have, but you've had uh, an amazing impact on my life and have demonstrated that and are in the midst of constantly giving me advice and 
and showing me that way. And I, I will just say from, from a kid's standpoint and, and from, from somebody who um, I can imagine you know, looking at it through your kids' eyes, like they will, maybe they, maybe like every kid, which will they, the progressive revelation of what their parents do for them, they are going to remember that. They're going to see that uh, in you. And maybe someday I could be certainly wrong, but they will remember something of like, dad, I remember a time when you did this, that you might not remember and be like, I appreciate that. It be, could be 20 years from now, but mm-hmm. modeling that as a, as a pastor and as a father, as a friend in this society, knowing that you're raising children, I know that's going to have an amazing impact on them because it's so countercultural that they have no choice but to notice it. And, and that's, that's why, that, that's the takeaway like for anyone else tonight. Like that's why I wanted to talk with you was, was mainly this very thing. And the, 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 how you got there, like that's, I think that just adds so much more beauty to it. Cause I can see how God has worked in your life from the very beginning to get you to a point where you can share this and, and have it be a part of your, your ministry and outreach. Well, Hey, thanks, man. I, um, I love these kinds of conversations. Um, I love, I mean, really, it's just a chance to shine a light on God. Like who, what, what Christian doesn't want that, you know, like what Jesus follower doesn't want to be able to just like, not just step out of that spotlight, like, but to avoid it, to grab a hold of it, (laughs) to point it right at Jesus. And I love, I love, um, iron sharpening. I love getting to engage in iron sharpening with other people. So Thanks um, for this and uh, years of other conversations. <laughs> well, uh, well, you are welcome. I'm glad the feeling is mutual. And yes, we will do this again. So thank you so much, Pastor James. I appreciate your time tonight. My pleasure, Michael. You too, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much again to Pastor James Haldane and especially for his time to be able to participate in, I, in what I can only describe as holiness so I, I hope you guys t- took away some great things from that, great lessons, and be able to look in the mirror and, th- and think, where is our role? What, what is our role in a particular issue? How do we you know, responsibly, with stewardship, act in tension and bear with one another? If you'd like to connect more with, with James and his church, Jax Naz Church, I'd encourage you to visit jaxnazchurch.com, J-A-X-N-A-Z, Church. Dot com. My church that I grew up in, that's the church I left in order to, to pastor my own church, and I miss them dearly. And James is one of the biggest reasons why. Thank you so much again to him. Thank you for tuning in this week. And as always, may God bless you and may God keep you.